I first met Matt Forger in 1984 at Westlake Studios. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was Westlake Studio A. At the time, I probably had no idea that Matt and I would go on to become lifelong friends. And uh, he's just, he's a great guy. He's an engineer that I have always loved and respected. Matt and I recently had a chance to have a really great conversation about his life in the recording studio uh, leading up to his work with Michael Jackson on projects like Thriller, Captain EO, Bad, Dangerous, History, on and on and on. Today we're going to focus on Captain EO. And it's it's such a, a fun conversation that I'm going to have to break it up into two parts. So I'm really happy to introduce you to Matt Forger as we start part one of our conversation about life in the studio and working on Captain EO. My name is Brad Sundberg, and this is In the Studio, the podcast. Hey guys, I am so excited. Tonight, I'm reuniting with one of my, I hate to say the word oldest friends, but but a dear old friend in the industry. Matt Forger and I go back to 1984, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, I'm going to let him speak for himself. But Matt, it is always so good to see you. And uh, you, you look great. And I'm so looking forward to having a good conversation with you. Well, it, it, it's it's been too long uh, that we since we've spoken or been able to see each other. But uh, I'm so happy to be able to do this uh, with you now. Share some awesome. memories. When I do these these interviews, Matt, a lot of the people that listen have really never stepped foot in a recording studio. So I'm, I'm not really talking to, you know, uh, industry veterans, although they're welcome to tune in. But I think recording studios have just kind of a cool mystique about uh, what happens in there, what, what they're like, um, how you actually start working in a studio. So kind of take me back to, uh, to young Matt Forger, um, how you first heard about the recording industry and what, what drew you into it. Well, uh, that's uh, the lead into that is that uh, when I was young, uh, I loved music. Uh, I had a big record collection, listened to all the, you know, all, all the albums, all the vinyl, uh, played with hi-fi gear, stereos, and uh, played guitar, took guitar lessons. Uh, I, was, I was thoroughly into music, uh, as I was to many other creative uh, things, uh, art, mechanical design. I was doing uh, all kinds of creative things. And of all of the fields that I enjoyed, music won out. And uh, after my days of college, uh, getting a degree in fine arts, I had been part-time mixing live sound. And I said, well, I think it would be more fun to work on music than it would be to be a starving artist. <laughs> so I, I decided I would, uh, I got out of uh, college, I graduated, and I, my, my buddies that I had been friends with for a long time in, in bands, they had a band. So uh, I started mixing with my, my friends' bands. I'm from uh, the suburbs of Syracuse, New York, uh, in central New York State. 
And so it was a regional thing, and I wanted to do a really good job, and I could not afford the really good gear uh, that I saw would see when I would go to a concert, you know, the professional right. level, level stuff. So I got the catalogs, read the books, reverse engineered the equipment that I was seeing used on a professional level, and I designed and built a lot of my own equipment. Uh, I designed and built a whole PA system. I built cabinets, enclosures, different kinds of, you know, sound hmm. reinforcement gear. Uh, I was really big into speakers, uh, into the whole mechanical operation of them and the acoustic design of them. And uh, I, my goal was to be able to make things sound as best they could because anyone who's ever worked in, in live entertainment, especially with rock and roll bands, you know, when you play whatever the venue is, a club, a bar, a, a theater, it's just another bad sounding room. Right. And uh, I thank heavens for uh, graphic equalizers because <laughs> that was the one tool that I could always fine tune the sound of the PA system that I designed to the acoustic room that the band was in. But every, every, every place the band played was just another bad sounding room. It wasn't designed right. for sound. So I said, I, I want to work in a recording studio because they're built, they're purpose built uh, with, with great acoustics so that you can make great sounding recordings. And with my friends in the band, we had a kind of a, a deal between us. Everybody bought a different piece of gear. Friend bought a uh, Tascam four track. Another friend bought a uh, a two track. Or oh no, I had the two track. And uh, someone else had a, a, a. I built a set of actual professional studio monitors for. I was hmm. I was building uh, Altec Lansing six oh fours. Okay. Uh, and I was I was designing the enclosures, and then I was modifying the speakers, and it, they they sounded pretty remarkable. Everybody who I invited over uh, to hear my sound system, I said, "Bring your favorite record over, and, and you know we'll play it through these speakers that I built and designed." Right. And when I would drop the needle on the record, their eyes would bulge out of their heads, and after they heard the first song on the on the album, they'd say. Oh my God, I've never heard anything like that. I never heard that part before. Because these were, in fact, the same types of speakers that were in the 1970s, at least, the most popular recording studio monitor speaker. And, but I, that was my goal. My goal was to create the best sound that I could. So when I had went out and I would mix my, my friend, friends in the band, to me, I had had you got to realize I had 18 inch uh, woofer subs in uh, folded W cabinets. I had uh, 15s. I had mid horns. I had super tweeters. So I had a big uh, four way gigantic sound system. To me, it was like I had the world's best stereo. Sure. And, and I got to mix the band live every night on my giant stereo, which was I, I, I went I went all the way out. And I said, I love doing this so much. I would love to do this professionally in a studio. So as I was mentioning, my friends, everybody bought a, uh, had a different piece of equipment. And I had a, an old, uh, if you remember, I think they were the Model 10 Tascam consoles. Okay. They were 
the first affordable level semi-professional gear that you could really do some serious work with. And the band, we would commandeer one of the band members' parents' homes <laughs> on a rotating basis. And uh, we would uh, record demos. All right, uh, so you hold this whole rig around. Well, I, I would bring... The, the, this board I had was not a live mixing board right. for recording. And uh, so this was a whole separate system from everything that was live. Okay. But uh, we would go to the drummer's house, and we would uh, the band would be in the garage, and then I would be in this uh, uh, basement bedroom. Or we'd be at the bass player's house, in which case I would be in an upstairs bedroom, and the, and the drummer would be in some other room. We had a bass player in the band who was also a prolific songwriter, and I would say that we probably recorded on the order of 60 or 70 songs over the course of the three years that we did that. Nice. And that gave me a lot of training because... I had to do it the same way the Beatles did it. It was only a four-track tape recorder. <laughs> right. And I had to then bounce down so that I could then have more tracks to overdub on. So between mixing live and uh, doing these recordings with my friends, I got in a lot of practice, and I taught myself a lot about sound. I just loved listening to records, so my point of reference was not only the, whatever the successful records of that time were, but also that was a point in my life when I made it a point. Uh, and this is something that Bruce Wedeen uh, talked about, was experiencing live music. Right. And, and I would go to every kind of live music performance, uh, classical, uh, all, all the way through all the genres. If, if there was somebody coming through town on a tour... Uh, you know, I'd go check out whoever the bands were in, in, in all different genres of music. Uh, and that inspired me into, uh, from a musical standpoint. So right. it, all, all of this was just my preparation work uh, to sell everything I owned and pack up my car and drive to California <laughs> because I, I was that serious about, about wanting to do it. I had visited a friend who lived in New York, and he worked at the Record Plant Studio in New York. So I visited him at his job. Okay. And, and then another friend had wor was working in California at a studio. So I visited that friend. And I said, no, uh, New York's not my kind of vibe. I don't want to live in New York City. But I, I right. would like to live in California because the weather's much nicer there. And, and, you're, and you do have the California vibe. There's no, uh, even though I know you're from upstate New York, you, you definitely have much more of a California vibe. So I get that. Yeah, it's, it, it, it suited me personality-wise. So, yes. Right. A couple, I, I was talking to Michael Bronstein a couple of weeks ago, and he was telling me all about the history of the record plant in New York. And like an idiot, I forgot that record plant was really hatched in New York and then went to L.A. and Sausalito. So, but you went to the old, the old record plant in New York. Was it on... 53rd? I do not remember. Um, I, I've never been there, so I, I, I don't know. But um, it, was, it was pretty interesting hearing his perspective of, uh, of the New York record plant. Well, uh, my friend who worked there was a, a tech there, uh, but I got to see the uh, studio that John Lennon did a lot of work in. 
Wow. And, and there were there were you know a lot of clients then, and that was an era when you know recording studios were very mysterious. You mentioned about right. the mystique aspect be, because there were, weren't all the reality TV shows based on entertainment uh, and and music business, so. People would walk into a recording studio and it would look so foreign to them. Right. Uh, but now everyone's seen it on television or in the movies, so everyone is, knows a little bit more visually what what the setting is like. But that was just like once once I moved to California, it was like when I would go into the studio and work, it was like, yeah, this is home. This is this is the place that I feel relaxed. So you you packed up your stuff, you moved to L.A. Where, where'd you go? How'd you start? Well, my friend uh, in L.A. said I could stay with him for a while uh, because conveniently he had just, wh- whatever it was that he had done, he said, you know, I've, I've earned this month-long vacation. He goes, you can have my room, and then when I get back, we'll figure something out. So when he got back, he was renting a house in uh, what's called the Mar Vista uh, okay. area neighborhood. I stayed in that house. I rented a room in that house for a while. And uh, he said, look, I'll introduce you to, you know, some people that I know. He told me that when he moved to L.A., uh, what he did was uh, instead of, like everybody else, opening the phone book and, and going down the list of studios, he said, I'm going to start at the other end of the alphabet. I'm going to start with Z and with work Z. my way up from Z, as opposed okay. to starting with A and calling right. the studios in alphabetical order. He did it in reverse order. So it wasn't long before he called Westlake Studio because yeah. that was pretty pretty much the bottom of the alphabet. Right. And with his uh, knowledge and expertise and recommendation from the record plant in, in New York, because uh, he had worked there as well. I just got I got a meeting with the owner, Glenn Phoenix. Uh, ironically or coincidentally, uh, they had lost a technician like about a month earlier, and they had hired mm-hmm. they had hired a guy. And my my friend uh, Jim said, "Oh wow, we we just we just hired a guy at the studio." Well, it turned out <laughs> it turned out the guy didn't work out, and he got fired in, 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 like after a week or two. So hmm. this this opening as if as if the universe was like making a place for me. Right. Uh, I walked in right when they needed someone as a technician, and I said, "Look, uh, here's what I'm able to do. I'm not an electronics technician. I, I, I don't, you know, can't take apart electronic equipment and repair it. But I've done everything else with equipment. You know, I've built cables. I've built my my own equipment, my own PA. So you know." The only thing I don't know is I don't know the studio environment, and I don't know the application of studio equipment, which is what I want to learn. So they said, well, okay, tech trainee, uh, you're here on, uh, you know, see how you fit, see how you work out, and uh, we'll we'll let you know. And working at Westlake was one of the greatest places if you wanted to get started, as you well know, because... The uh, people there are so, all, all the personnel, so warm and friendly and right. knowledgeable. Some of the most knowledgeable people in the studio oh, scene in Los Angeles. Down. And because they had uh, incredible techs, incredible uh, design, 
uh, and engineering people there because Westlake was more than just a recording studio. They also designed and built recording studios. They also designed and built uh, studio monitor speakers. So they had uh, a, and they also operated a uh, portion of their business was a uh, professional equipment sales. Right. So it was, there was always people there who would generously give up their time to teach you something if you wanted to take the time to learn about something, uh, which I did on many occasions. And uh, I learned a great deal. I then eventually was able to make the transition from being a technician to actually working in the control rooms with the clients as a staff engineer, a second engineer, an assistant engineer, as it's known. And Matt, what, I'm sorry, but what year did you start at Westlake, approximately? Uh, I started in 1979. You were at the Westlake on Wilshire, right? Well, originally, uh, the original Westlake studio was a uh, facility on Wilshire Boulevard, and it was basically what would be considered a mix room. It, right. had, it had a small studio room that was not very large, but you could maybe set up a drum kit in there, but the drum kit would occupy the entire room. Now, forgive me if I've got my chronology wrong, but wasn't there a little album called Off the Wall mixed in that room? Or was that at the Beverly Building? You are absolutely correct. It was a marvelous little room. Uh, I worked in there uh, many times uh, with clients uh, in sessions. And All right, so we're, we're, we're going to jump uh, ahead a couple of years here shortly, but, but we touched on, on uh, Off the Wall. So is that, was that the first time that, that you crossed paths with, with Michael Jackson? No, uh, because that uh, facility on Wilshire Boulevard was the very original one, uh, by the time I had moved to Los Angeles, they had built uh, their, uh, what they called their Beverly facility. Yep. Which was, it was a uh, building which uh, in a prior life housed a post office. I remember that. Yeah. Which so it's it was it was so it was a large building. Yeah. Uh, and in that large building they were able to build a a larger room and a slightly smaller room. Studios mm-hmm. A and B. And uh, Wilshire was always called the mix room. The 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 studios A and B were was the showplace of of Westlake Audio in terms of studio design and construction and their studio monitors. They were and still are uh, a superb uh, facility. Sure. Uh, and then and later they they, they uh, the the building that housed the original uh, mix room. The lease ran out, and they took over another building in uh, the uh, Hollywood area, on Santa Monica Boulevard, where they built right. Studio C, D, and E, because that was yet still a, a, a physically a larger building. And Studio B, or, or Studio D, I should say, is the largest of the Westlake rooms, and it really is spacious. And I know that you spent a great deal of time in Studio D as well. <laughs> There were there were months when I think I spent more time in that room than I did uh, in in the real world, but uh, but but that's okay. So let, let's go back to Westlake Beverly, and uh, 
just off the top of your head, when do you remember meeting Michael Jackson uh, for the first time? I remember meeting him on uh, April 14th of uh, 1982. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, you why want, do you, you remember? You, you, you wanted the... the yeah. No, you're amazing. So well, why do you remember that date so, that, so succinctly? That is uh, the most... Memorable, memorable day of my life. I had been working with Quincy Jones. Uh, I, I have to back up just a little bit. Uh, I was hired as a studio technician, a tech trainee. Okay. I, I was. I worked specifically at the Beverly facility, although I did uh, occasionally go and work at this uh, mix room. I had. Uh, Transition from being a technician into a uh, the the staff engineering position, so I assisted with many uh, engineers. I had been working for I want to say at least a year, maybe a year and a half. I had been working on projects with Quincy Jones and Bruce Wedeen. right? And those were projects were the Lena Horn Broadway Show album, mm-hmm. uh, the Donna Shunton Summer album. Uh, the Ernie Watts uh, Chariots of Fire album. So there was, uh, we took a little break uh, for a week in April because of scheduling. And uh, they said, uh, okay, we're going to do a tracking date. We've got to record this one song because it's the only time in, in, when everyone uh, has uh, free time to be in Los Angeles. I went to work that day and it was another tracking date. The band that day was uh, basically Toto. And the mm-hmm. bass player was Lewis Johnson. And there was a moment when, in the course of the, the, that day of, of tracking, uh, when I looked around the control room. And on, on the far side of the control room, because I, I, w- I would always stand next to, located next to the, the uh, uh, patch bay and the multi-track tape machine, because that was my job to be the technician or the assistant and make sure technically everything was working. So I was on the right-hand side, and on the left, of the far side of the studio, were all of the studio musicians. Uh, Steve Lukather, Steve Piccaro, uh, David Page, uh, Jeff Piccaro, bass player Lewis Johnson. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were talking with Paul McCartney, and uh, seated, seated at the uh, far end of the console, the producer's desk, was Quincy Jones. In front of the console uh, was Michael Jackson. Standing behind uh, Quincy Jones was George Martin, producer of the Beatles. <laughs> Senator, okay. con- Senator of the console was Bruce Wedeen. Standing right. behind Bruce Wedeen was Jeff Emmerich, engineer of most of the Beatles records. Right. And something occurred to me, because my whole life, uh, when I was young, I always knew when you listen to music on the radio, you listen to a bunch of songs, and then that one song comes on that you go, "Yeah, I love this song. Oh man, I love this!" And you want to sing along with the hook, or you know, you do the head bob or dance. There's always that one special song, and then there's a bunch of other songs, but there's always right. that one song that just reaches out and grabs you. And if you've mm-hmm. ever been in an establishment that has a dance floor, you know what I mean. There's that one song where that dance floor gets so packed because right. that song's got the magic. And growing up, I, 
I recognized that. And I always said to myself, what is that thing? Uh, all the time I was mixing live sound. It was the same thing. It was like, uh, I, I would see it every night. And I'd go, what is it about this one song? I mean, it sounds great. And the others are good. But how do you get to great from good? Yep, I follow you. And I looked around that room. <laughs> and this is called the aha moment. The okay. first time somebody said, what's your aha moment? I go, what's an aha moment? I have no, no idea what you're talking about. They go, it's that moment where the light bulb goes off in your head and you go, ah, aha, I understand now. I right. Looked, I looked around the room and I said, if I am amongst these people, professionals of this level, and I cannot find out what it is, that mysterious thing that I've been searching for for so many years involved with music and mixing bands, I go, I'm never going to be able to because this is the, the, I, I, in the entire world, on the entire planet, right. that one room was the place where I would be able to see what it is. That what is the magic? What is that right. secret ingredient? What, how, how does it come together? And, and it was at that moment that that I realized my my prayers were answered. Uh, the universe was smiling on me. I was in uh, I was in that one position that I always dreamt. I mean, this was even beyond my dreams. This was beyond right. anything I'd ever imagined. But but I was there, and I said, okay, okay, now now if if I can't do it, I'm, it's never going to happen. So so hmm. that was that was you know we want to take talk about a life changing moment or experience. Uh, that was it for me because I realized that's amazing. This is it. This is it. You you don't do not get any better. Then, uh, you know, the, the, this is the top people in the music business on the, on the planet uh, are standing right. in this room with me. That's awesome. There, there's uh, you've had countless of these experiences. I've I've been fortunate to uh, uh, have a, a few handfuls of them myself. I know you when, have. It, when when you're in that, uh, yeah, you're you're in a recording studio. I've been able to, you know, be there when Miles Davis uh, played a trumpet solo, uh, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Lena Horne, Michael Jackson, uh, or Shaka Khan and Saida Garrett doing a duet, where it's so, you can't really explain it. You know, you do the best you can, but it's just, it's a little gem of a memory that you hang on to. And uh, I think there's a bit of a band of brothers that uh, kind of, and that's or sisters. I'm not trying to be sexist, but um, I get it. I mean, I wasn't there with you at that moment, but I understand the the magnitude of of those kind of moments. Well, so you, that's you, amazing. You participated in what I consider a monumental uh, project because back on the block to me. That what what that album encompasses is is unparalleled. There there isn't yeah. any uh, there there isn't anything else. As as you know, and for people listening to this, 
you, the understanding is when you're in that room and you're doing your job, you are a professional. Uh, you do not have the sense of showing any degree of excitement or any degree of, oh my God, this is really happening. Right. You, you, you are totally cool as a cucumber, as they say. <laughs> because <laughs> the job, the job description. Not only that, but you've done it hundreds of times. So it's like you know the degree of professionalism that is expected in that moment, and that's what you are, and that's what you do. But when you look back, because it's only through history that that we truly appreciate uh, what uh, some recording or some piece of music accomplishes. Because when it goes out in the world, it creates its own thing. And uh, I was fortunate to have that experience and you know there's there's that saying about if you want to be successful you have to surround yourself with successful people which means you have to get yourself in a position where you, you got to play up to somebody else's game right you, you you can't be the best most talented guy in the room you got to be the least talented you got to be the guy coming in mm-hmm. so that you can understand what the playing level is. What where is the bar set? What what playing level is the field that you want to reach? What is that person that you want to be? You can look around the room and you can see examples and role models of that. So that you you can set your sights. You can set you can see it. You can you and you can feel the vibe. And, and you can understand if if I you know if I work real hard my whole life, this is this is what I can do. But I think there's something to be said about just that that hard work and and refining the, you know, uh, iron refining refining iron, getting out there and uh, maybe feeling a little bit of rejection, but pushing yourself past that uh, to get better. Well, you have to fail to learn the lessons that move you forward. All right, so let, let's circle back to 1992. 92. In, in the, I'm sorry, 1982. But because that was, that was uh, the tracking day for The Girl Is Mine, and that right. was the first day of recording for Thriller, the Thriller album. Wow. And, and we worked that week because Paul was available that week, Michael was available that week. So we were actually in the middle of the Donna Summer album. So Donna, Donna took a, a week's vacation, and uh, the team, uh, Bruce, uh, Quincy, Rod Tupperton, and myself, you know, we, we worked on that song that week. Wow. And then we went back to Donna, and then we picked up, uh, resumed work on Thriller, I think, in July. Was that the album where Donna did State of Independence? That's the one. Holy cow, I love that song. Yeah, that is a uh, phenomenal recording. It, it, that mix, everything about that song, it, it's probably one of the most overlooked Donna Summer songs. I mean, everyone knows you know, her big hits, but man, that's a great song. Yeah, so, and tons of technology went into uh, creating all that layering of all that sound. I, I, no. I earned whatever meager pay I made <laughs> on that project. Uh, most certainly, but the thing that I got was I got lots of hours of practice and experience, 
right. at, at how to do something of, of that nature. And wow. Quincy Jones, in fact, said if it wasn't for State of Independence, because uh, on State of Independence, he recorded what was called the All-Star Choir. Yep. Which was uh, Christopher Cross, uh, uh, Dionne Warwick, uh, Stevie Wonder. J James Ingram. James Ingram. There was a, a host of, of phenomenal vocalists that came in and sang. And he said that is what he used as his template uh, for tackling uh, We Are the World. Really? Yes. He, 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 he has said that... It, I, I don't know if he said it more publicly or if that was something that was a private comment, but he said... No, either way. That was the, that was the thing that proved to him it could be done and how to approach it uh, because that was the biggest technological stretch that I had done with those guys. You want to see a bunch of happy people, you know, when they know all their hard work is actually going to come together and sound like uh, a recording and work. And I'm not going to go into the technology side. And, and, and we, we, we might do that in a future one, because I'm, I'm actually very curious, but keep going. We, we can't, but literal, just so you know, the four of us literally got up and danced around the control room, <laughs> jumping for joy, when we heard all of the components of that song come together because it took months of work to record all of the individual components and it wasn't until one moment uh, towards the end where the we heard all the components together and everyone was literally uh, we, we all got up and, and, and had to move I mean that song has such uh, uh, power and energy uh, when and for anyone that hasn't heard it uh, off the Donna Summer album, listen to State of Independence. Yes, yeah. ten ten thousand times. Yes, um, I, I didn't work on that song. Uh, it was before, and I didn't even. I mean, I, I certainly always made the association of you know Quincy and Bruce and you, uh, you know, working on that that project. But State of Independence is it's just one of those songs that uh, a lot maybe a lot of people haven't heard, and it's just an insanely good record. The pedigree of that song. Right. Is like that song comes from the most talented, you know, creative people in the business, which is why Quincy said, we've got to do this song. Yeah, I, I, I can't I can't say it enough times. But if, if you've if you've only heard Donna Summer doing uh, hot stuff and bad girls, um, you need to listen to State of Independence because it's just uh, a, a remarkable piece of music. Yes, you will. have so, your, your spirit lifted when you hear it. Oh, man. All right. This is so hard, Matt, because in my mind, um, I, I want to have about 18 conversations with you. <laughs> I, I, I want to sink into Thriller. I want to sink into uh, Blood on the Dance Floor. But we're going to fast forward because I'm going to have you back. Okay. And I want to, this is the era when I first met you. I, I promise to my listeners, we're going to go back and do an entire podcast just on Thriller. But I think Thriller's had a lot of, you know, certainly a lot of press, not, not that there's ever too much. We're going to do it, but I want to skip over Thriller. By now, you've got a really cool friendship with Michael Jackson. And I want to touch on 
you kind of doing some work at Havenhurst and how Captain EO came about and kind of that that post-thriller, the victory tour, Michael's back from tour. I'm going to shut up and let you kind of take it from there. I want to hear about that era. Okay, what happened was... uh... I had the most, <laughs> I'm laughing because I can only laugh when I think of the fact that uh, I, I had done Thriller after uh, Thriller, we did the James Ingram album, I don't know, I was, uh, whatever Michael was doing, he was off doing stuff. Um, one day, I'm at home, and I get a call, and it's, Michael Jackson would like me to go to the studio because he has written some songs he wants to record. I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm going to say no. Uh, so uh, I, so who called you? Uh, I believe it was Michael's assistant. Um, and the, I don't know who that was at the time. It was Ma- it been Mary? I think it was Mary. Okay. Uh, or because uh, Candy... Norma? Candy? You remember Candy? Did Candy come I, in? I don't, I don't remember Candy. I remember Mary, Norma, and Evie. Then it might have been Candy if she preceded Mary. Uh, okay. For, for the, the, the true uh, hardcore uh, <laughs> people. So I get <laughs> a call Trust from, me, they're keeping track. I, have, I get a call from Michael's assistant. Right. I, I go, Sure. Oh, yeah, 12 o'clock, no problem. I go to the studio. Michael says, oh, I want to record some things. So I go, okay. Which studio? <laughs> oh, Westlake Studio A. Okay. So it's me. It's Michael Jackson. And I'm thinking to myself, well, okay. Now, I know what Michael does better than anyone else in terms of writing and singing and his dancing. And I know I can do the engineering part, but... There's got to be somebody performing something on a piece of equipment or a musical instrument here. <laughs> right. So uh, I don't know if that first day we talked or what it was, but what came out of that was uh, there were several musicians who came in at different times. There was a classical guitarist. There was uh, John Barnes came in with a pile of synthesizers and uh, equipment, and there were there was... Uh, a couple other dates where there were other musicians that would come in from initially just capturing a few ideas from Michael. We might have just done vocals that first day. Okay. Uh, so let me so hold, let, let me interrupt. I'm going to ask a couple dumb questions. I mean, what's it like? Are are you guys are you, are you close friends at this point? Are you com- I mean, you're comfortable? Are you nervous? Well, Michael is now. Uh, been in the studio with me for on, on and off for Thriller was uh, months, I don't know how, how many months um, almost half a year Okay, uh, on and off uh, because Thriller was done in blocks of time uh, I also worked uh, with uh, Spielberg and Quincy on the uh, E.T. Storybook album right. so, so Michael knew me and Michael, okay. Michael knew me as Bruce's protege. He he saw me operate in the studio. He he, right. he, he there, there there wasn't any question about calling me and saying, "Can you do this?" He knew of that I was competent, and um, 
it started out kind of slow with a couple of these things and then uh, when he wanted to get into a little bit more serious uh, type of music production then John Barnes would show up like I said with his his cartage would deliver his his truckload of gear and that was the era when you know one guy with a uh, computer or a sequencer or a drum machine or a pile of synthesizers or all that equipment put together uh, could construct a song you you would layer it uh, in a multi-track multi-element way and whatever element you wanted to start with was the one that you would start with and with Michael it would always vary uh, sometimes Michael would start with a feel and he'd do a beatbox thing or sometimes and sometimes that would be translated into a drum program uh, and then keyboards would be added and then if we needed a uh, bass player or a guitarist or some other instrumentalist you know they would come in and we recorded uh, uh, there was a uh, a song called scared of the moon how about that that uh, I recorded in fact when I work with Spike Lee uh, on uh, bad 25 uh, I, I met Spike we were talking we were talking for about 30 or 40 minutes and finally Spike turned to me and said I gotta ask you one question did you record Scared of the Moon? I go, yeah, that was, that was my song. <laughs> he jumped up out of his chair. I didn't know what to expect. He came over and he gave me a big hug. Really? Goes, That's my favorite song. That's so awesome. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was just like so surprised that that was his favorite song and that he reacted right. that way to it. And I guess, yeah, well, yeah, I was there for that one and the birth of many, many other Michael Jackson songs. That went on to things. Scared of the Moon, of course, didn't come out until it was included in uh, the Ultimate Collection. I I think think so. A bunch of people are yelling. Yeah, they they know better than their phones right now. Yeah, because it gets fuzzy for me because when I've worked on so many things, I don't remember where they end up. Being. Yeah, or, or which song morphs into what song, and uh, yeah, because so, there's there's a there, there's a t- there's a ton of releases, but the path to how a song got to any individual release is is a convoluted thing. Right. So we start we started we started working together, and uh, we started on a bunch of songs, and uh, one of them was uh, Centipede, uh, which was a Reby Jackson. Michael Jackson produced his sister. Right. Uh, a centipede was kind of inspired by the uh, video game. It, mm-hmm. was a, it was an arcade video game at that point in time. That was a, that was a thing. In that mix of time, I also mixed the opening for the Victory Tour, which was this theatrical. Uh, I want to say the the the, sound, the music for it was very soundtrack. Right. Uh, it, it was really dramatic, big soundtrack. Uh, Jay Winding, I believe, wrote the piece. And um, it was started at some other studio, and then he brought it in, and he did a bunch of overdubs. And then we, uh, through course of events, uh, it was time to mix. And he wanted it to sound big and dramatic. And I said, well, okay, let's make it big and dramatic, because this this has got to be the opening to to the, the victory uh, tour uh, concert. If you if you went to the victory, saw the victory tour, 
or, or I know there's a video, I believe, of it out there in the world. Uh, you know, this was the thing that set the stage. Yeah, so sure. It was big. It was dramatic. <laughs> it was powerful. It was really fun, uh, you know, a fun piece to do. And then uh, you, well, you want to talk about the, uh, in that same time, what the next thing is, is then uh, what followed that? Yeah. Do well, remember? before we do, I mean, what was this? I mean, was Michael, did he say, hey, I'm kind of working on some songs for a new album? Or he just got off tour and wanted to hang out in the studio? Or we are currently before okay. Victory uh, in that era between uh, post-Thriller. Right. The Victory album is uh, is about to be started or recorded that that's that's right, in the mix right. at this time the victory tour comes together the victory album michael's uh contributions uh, of his two songs so i'm working with bruce on those and i'm working with michael on these other songs that he's working on so there was there was just a whole lot going on in that time period right so this leads up to the next piece. Yeah, the next piece is we're, we're sitting. I think we just finished Centipede, mm-hmm. or finishing it, and Michael comes in some days. Says, "I got to tell you about a new project." We said, "Okay, cool." He said, "But I'm not going to tell you now. I'm going to tell you." So he, he built the suspense. <laughs> he said, okay, okay, I got this. I got this new thing. I'm going to be talking to you about. I got him. Got to have a meeting. I'm going to come back. And I'm going to tell you. So he comes back. And it's John Barnes and myself, and he, and he comes in. He goes, "Okay." We're, we're doing this project. Not now. Now he knows. He knows what exactly what the deal is and what the specifics are. It kind of was right. like the negotiations or whatever. Every all the parties weren't in place. And he says, "We're going to do a new project. We're going to do something that's never been done before." He said, "We're going to do. We're going to work with George Lucas." coming off of all of the Star Wars movies. Sure. Francis Ford Coppola. (laughs) And we're going to create a a 3D movie that's going to go into specially built uh, theater in Disneyland. Wait a minute. They actually built a special theater for this at Disneyland? All right. I am so looking forward to hearing part two of this interview with Matt Forger, uh, where he and I really start digging into Captain EO. I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, I love hanging out with Matt and uh, people that have spent literally their entire lives in recording studios, and I appreciate you guys hanging out with me. Have a great day. I will see you next time in the studio, the podcast. In the Studio, the podcast is produced by Maddie Sundberg. Graphics and creative input by Andy Healy. Special thanks to Golden Age Project and Tributaries Cables. My name is Brad Sundberg, host of In the Studio, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.